this time, I want to encourage you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 11. As we read the final Toledot, the final section of this part of the series. We're going to take a break after today and we're going to look at the book of James. We've been in this book since May of last year and we've covered a lot of ground and there's still a lot more to cover in Genesis but this first half of the book it, it's, it's very different in many regards from the second half and so it's, a, it, it's an appropriate pausing point if you will. So the verses that begin in 27, which we aren't reading today, now these are the generations of Terah, that introduces a Toledote or a section that is all about Abraham, and that Toledote goes all the way through chapter 25, verse 11. So it's a huge Toledote, especially in comparison to the one we're reading today, which is chapter 11, verses 10 through 26. So I invite you to read... What Moses, the servant of the Lord, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has penned for us. We read, These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arxpasad, who two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad, sorry, 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. After Arpachshad had lived, and Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Reu lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarag lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Brothers and sisters, even this is God's word to you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for this, your word, and we ask that you would be with us now as we reflect upon it and pronounce what you have called us to believe and do. We ask that you would guide us and guard us. For Christ's sake, we pray it. Amen. All right, brothers and sisters, as I said prior to reading this passage, uh, this is the final Toledoth that we're going to look at at this time. 
So this is kind of the conclusion of the first half of Genesis. Starting in verse 27, he's going to pick up with the life and times of Abram, who becomes Abraham, and carry on. And what is interesting about these words is that textually speaking, it takes us all the way back to the genealogy we read about in chapter 10. So when Noah's sons had, had given birth to their various children, if you look at chapter 10, when it lists the descendants, the offspring of Shem, it mentions that he has two sons, Peleg and Joktam, and then it follows out Joktam's descendants, but nothing is said about Peleg beyond the fact that it was in his days that the earth was divided. But no mention is made of Peleg's descendants. Well, now it's that branch of the family tree, so, that, so to speak, that's picked up here in chapter 11. But, but I hope you see that what's taking place is this narrative is going forward and chapter 10's narrative is, ex is explaining the spread of peoples around the globe in the midst of incidents like the Tower of Babel, in the midst of things such as the call of Abram. All this is taking place, and we're going to talk about the significance of that in a little bit. But since this is the end of the series, one of the lessons that you should reflect upon uh, when you're reading the first 11 chapters is that we serve a God who is not like us. He is other than us. We are in his image, but you should not think that God is simply a bigger, stronger, smarter human. God operates with a, with a rationale and a principle that is above and beyond our way. He has a, a, a purpose and a plan that goes beyond what we can comprehend. And he does things in a manner that baffle and leave us with our jaws dropped in amazement. God is different. And so we see that the purposes that he unveils and unfolds and sets in motion in the first 11 chapters of Genesis are truly astounding. Going back to creation, how it's, he speaks and it is. And our curious minds want to know how. And God's word just tells us he spoke. And it was. And all that is was made out of all that is not was not. It is amazing. One of the things that I recall, uh, well, I'm sorry, that we need to recall is that when we consider life, quote unquote, back then, in the early stages of the world, in its infancy, so to speak, not everything operated according to the same principles they operate on today. And you see this even, for example, in the fact that these, these men who are listed here lived exceptionally long times, though we do see that their ages are diminishing but they pale in comparison, all of them, to the ages of people from the genealogy of chapter 5, which it was common for people to live eight, 900 years 
At least that's the way the genealogy makes it seem. Who knows? Those could have just been exceptions. But we're invited to see that as the norm based on the fact that they are listed that way. And we need to bear in mind that when God created, he did so in a way that we cannot reproduce. So science technically can't be involved to investigate because science depends upon reproducibility, replicability to be able to test a a, a hypothesis or a theory. But things were different back then and God set in motion things and then he seems to have steadied out, labeled out, leveled out everything so that they operate in accordance with the normal providence that we have now. One of the things, for example, I was watching a YouTube video just just this week and it was talking about what would happen if, if, if there were only two people who survived, if the whole population of the earth was gone, there were two people left, could they repopulate the earth? And it talked about how all the genetic defects that come from inbreeding and all the genetic problems, and, and it would just be a pretty disastrous thing. Well, that, that's exactly what had to happen back in the day. But then you see we get to a point in human in, 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 in historical development where God suddenly, the thing that had, had to be a practice of necessity is now suddenly outlawed. And so why is it that those same genetic mutations and defects didn't take place or apparently didn't take place back then? I don't know. I think it has something to do with the long lives we see here. You know, it's very common for people to suggest that that something atmospherically changed after the flood that caused people to live shorter lives. But I'm not so sure about that. Why? Because consider Shem. Do the math. He actually lived longer than Abraham. By the numbers here, he was like, Abraham was dead like 35 years before Shem. Shem was exposed to the same post-flood atmosphere. He, he didn't die young. I don't know. I think it does have something to say about the potency of the human genetic code that was created, how Adam and Eve had within their genes every people, every race. Think of the potency of that genetic code. And how, how it produced long lives and how after generations have have rolled out, it levels off. It doesn't keep diminishing down to nothing. It levels off. So for example, Moses himself was providentially blessed to live a long life. But by the time Moses is on the scene and he writes Psalm 90, He's able to confess that the length of a human life is, what, 70, 80 years, which that's (laughs) kind of what it is now, right? I mean, sure, there are exceptions, but that's kind of the way it is. So I think there was a great leveling off and an unpacking of the human genetic code. But nonetheless, I digress. But the reason I'm saying this is because when you study the first 11 chapters of Genesis, it is, the, it is the target of critical scholars because so much of it seems fantastical. 
And brothers and sisters, there is mystery and it abounds because God doesn't just tell us how he did it. But understand that our God is sovereign and in control of history and he has made that which has been made. Another one of the things that we need to bear in mind as we approach these chapters is the principle of sola scriptura. One of the things that plagues, I think it's unique in the Reformed tradition, is we have such an elevated view. We, we thanks to guys like Kuiper, want to say all truth is God's truth. And so anytime we see an apparent fact in general revelation, we think it's authoritative and there's a great risk to say, I'm going to determine what is true on the basis of the authority of general revelation plus scripture. And you have to remember, with general revelation, the best we can tentatively say at any given time is this appears true. Sola Scriptura dictates that it doesn't just apply to Catholicism and church tradition. It applies to how we come to understand all that we know. Scripture is authoritative. So if it says that a man lives 956 years, that's what I believe. Okay? Because I also believe that Scripture is very clear that nowadays in God's ordinary providence, the length of a man is 70 years, 80 years if he has the strength. That's not an absolute rule. But that's kind of the normative length of human life, isn't it? Plus or minus? Ballparking it? It's a poem which ballparks things. So yeah. But all right, there, there are a few things about this genealogy, though, that I want to highlight that I think are important before we get on to the big picture. What can, we, uh, what, what can we learn from it? Note the contrast between Genesis 5 and here. In Genesis 5, the genealogy went in such a way that after every name, what's the last thing said about every single person? And he died, and he died, and he died. It's, I mean, it gets kind of repetitive, and he died, and he died. Now, yes, all these people died. <laughs> by, by not saying they didn't die, by not including the phrase he died, it's not saying they didn't die. Okay, don't get that wrong. But literarily, it is sending a different message. In Genesis chapter 5, Moses was trying to convey the futility of life in a sinful state and the universal uniform spread and consequence of sin affecting death but now here literarily by, by not including that constant refrain we see a different we're encouraged actually to be hopeful why well, who's at the end of this genealogy Abraham. And we know where the story is going. Now, to appreciate that, you got to step back to what we said last week. How the Tower of Babel incident represents one of the low points of 
the Bible in terms of human history, that here is humanity dispersed under God's judgment and discipline, divided by God lest they come back together to live out and to fulfill the all of the potential they have for wickedness. They're driven out, just like they were driven out in chapter 3 from the garden. They are driven out, they are divided, they are scattered. And where's the hope? A defeated, demoralized people who no longer can communicate brother with brother, dispersed over the face of the earth, Where's the hope? Well, the hope is right here. We see that in the midst of all of this, in the midst of it all, God has a line. And he's moving with a focus and a purpose towards the one in whom and through whom he says just a few verses later, all these nations, all these peoples that I've scattered in judgment around, all of them in you, Abraham, will be blessed. So the hope then is to be found not in man's ingenuity, our creativeness, that you see our hubris at the, at the tower. Our hope is to be found in the purpose and the plan of God. Another thing about this genealogy that ought to be remembered and reflected on is that you, you got to have a little tentativeness when you look at Hebrew genealogies. Why? Because the word fathered, he fathered, it, it, in their way of thinking, can mean, I'm the dad of so-and-so. But it can also mean I'm the ancestor. I'm the guy who fathered someone who fathered someone else. So, for example... When you see here in, in chapter 11, verse 12, it says, Arpachshad lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. Right? Well, look at Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 3. Now, Luke is using the Septuagint, which includes this, but in Luke chapter 3, between Arpachshad and Shelah, it says that Arpachshad had Canaan. And Canaan, after living 130 years, gives birth, or his wife, whatever, he fathers Shelah. But this isn't a contradiction in Scripture. There's many places in the Old Testament where fathered this, that, or the other. It, it, it doesn't mean what we westernized Americans always think of. We think of only one thing when it says that. They didn't think in terms of that. And also... Look at the end here in, in verse 26. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So did he have triplets? Who thinks that means he had, his wife had triplets in the 70th year of his life? That's what we Americans might think. But that, just looking at the simple verses ahead, doesn't line up. Why? Well, okay, it says that Haran lives 200, or uh, Terah lives 205 years. Abraham is 75 years when he departs the town of Haran, but his dad's already dead. What the what? 
Well, what this means is he became a father at the age of 70, started having kids, and just like what happened back in chapter 9 with Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Shem was listed first, not because he was firstborn, but because he's the preeminent one. So too here, Abram is listed first, not because he was born first, but because he's the preeminent one. He's the only one we care about, really. Okay? So the other two are just there for dramatic effect, I guess, as Rich Mullins would say. So understand then that the problem is not with the Bible. This is a continual reminder that we have to check the prejudices and the lens that we bring to the Bible with thanks to our culture. So what I appreciate about this kind of passage is it really does cause me to have to check that. It balances out and it, and it rebukes my own arrogance, my own assumptions of what, what the author is trying to say to remember, to remind myself that the guy writing this was a Hebrew who was first writing to other Hebrews, but that there was the Holy Spirit involved who was writing this, who was having this written for all of God's people in all times, in all places, so we can understand it. But we do have to remember to come back to what was the mindset, again, what was the author trying to convey? So, study God's word diligently, but remember, you got to try as best you can to get into the mindset of the author to be able to better understand it. Now, that being said, what is apparent is this. Abram was just a few hundred years, between 230 to about 300 years post-flood. He was pretty near to the flood. People in general, while their lifespans were unwinding and, and, they were, and, and they were living less long than they were before, they were still living a good long ways. This explains uh, chronological nearness to the flood, which also means chronological nearness to the Tower of Babel, but also the, the still lengthy age of people explains a few things that you're going to see when you're reading Genesis and the rest of the Bible. First, it explains why there were still pockets of worship of the true God. For example, in Arabia, which is really nowhere near where the land of Canaan is, there's a guy named Job. And he has three friends, and they're all worshiping the true God. Well, how is that to be? Well, when you factor in, they're just, they're just a few hundred years from the flood. The, law, the, the knowledge of God is not totally gone. In the land of Canaan, you have a guy named Melchizedek, who's Still, I understand there's a minority report that doesn't think he was a Yahweh worshiper. That is a minority report for a reason. The majority report is that he was a, he was a priest of Yahweh. Well, how is that? He was a Canaanite. Well, remember, God says that the sin of the 
Amorites was not yet full. It, it, it explains another thing. It explains why Abram is, is terrified that the Egyptians and the Amalekites, that they're going to kill him for Sarah. But both kings, Pharaoh and, uh, I can't remember the, whatever. Is it Abimelech? There we go. Thank you. I knew I could count on Randy. <laughs> when God approaches them in a dream, they know who God is. And they're like, hey, man, we didn't do anything wrong. You know, and why did you put this evil on us, Abram? Why do they still have that moral sense? Well, because they're close to the flood. Why is it? Now, we have some mighty, nice-looking elderly ladies in our church. And many of us have seen lovely-looking elderly ladies. But, but let's, be, let's think in terms of power-hungry tyrants. I'm not so sure that I've ever seen a 70-year-old woman who's so hot that, 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 a, that a king is going to want to kill her husband and add, him, and add her to his harem. How is it that she could be so hot that Abram thinks that's a viable threat? Well, when you factor in that they're just coming off of people living 200 years, what's a 90-year-old? <laughs> right? So that actually explains a few things for us. It explains that as things were kind of winding out and, and, and the human genetic code was kind of getting itself leveled out and humans were spreading out, that there's, this kind of explains why you see some of the phenomenon you see in the days of Abram that you don't see in subsequent generations. Okay? So, what is all this for us? Well, brothers and sisters, I want you to do three things. I want you first to marvel at God's inscrutable wisdom. I mean, just, just think about this. You all took geography and social studies, and from, from Babel, the human race is spread out, and, and peoples are, are beginning to form, and just, just think about the movements of nations, the movements of tribes, how they've departed from Babel and made their way north. They made their way east across Asia. Think of the centuries, the millennia involved. They made their way down to what we would call Southeast Asia, and then they got sick of being there, and they got in boats, and they sailed across the ocean and got to places like Hawaii. They went over into Africa, which is just massive, and they went everywhere. They, they traveled across the land bridge, came into this continent. Some of them thought, hey, this is great up here, and they became what we call Eskimos. The others said, this is for the birds, and, or let's follow the birds, and they went south, all the way down to the bottom of this, what we call South America. And the Bible says this is God's doing. That God is involved in, God establishes the boundaries and the times of kingdoms. Go over to New Mexico and they, the National Park Service has preserved some, some ancient 
Native American sites, that these civilizations were really advanced, and guess what? They were gone hundreds of years before the first European even discovered, before Columbus even discovered. All this is God's doing, and then we're invited to see that in the middle of his grand plan being worked out for all of humanity... In chapter 11 here, we're presented with the fact that even as he's spreading out humanity and Shem himself, one of the sons of Noah, and he's going about his business, whatever, nonetheless, out of the line, God is working his plan of salvation for his people. So God, in his inscrutable wisdom, works to advance his purposes globally while also working out his plan of salvation for his people. It's incredible. Praise God, secondly, for his sovereign purposes of election. What is fascinating to me is that we are told and shown that there are pockets where the knowledge of God was retained like with Job and his friends, like with Melchizedek, okay? Guess where they weren't retained? Guess where the knowledge of God was not retained? In, in this family. Joshua, contrary, far from being a holy line, like some people naively want to tell you, J Joshua 24.2 tells us explicitly that Terah, Abraham, all their fathers in the old, they served other gods before they were called. So, this is fascinating to me. God issues through Noah a blessing to Shem that, that his line would be the preeminent line. The family apparently goes pagan. But in God's purposes of election, he calls forth a pagan. Abram, and he calls him to worship the one true and living God. And Abraham responds in faith, and it's credited to him as righteousness. That's election at work. And that's why God repeatedly tells the people of Israel throughout Deuteronomy, don't think it's because you're better. Don't think it's because you're more holy. Don't think it's because you just are so beautiful and lovely. It's it's my purposes. You, dear brother and sister, stand by the same grace that called Abram. Your background may be one of illustrious and your family may have believers going back generations. Or you, like Abram, might be a first generation Christian. God's purposes in election underscore and demonstrate his sovereign rule even as he is governing the affairs of this world. It is marvelous to behold. And then, thirdly and finally, I want you to trust in God's good and mysterious providence. Had he not millennia before promised that the seed of the woman would ultimately destroy the seed of the serpent. Yes. Had he not given a word of encouragement through Noah 
Yes. Had he not sent people in his name to preach like Enoch? Yes. But yet as time marches on, as people take one plodding step, as they are spreading out, as they're going through the muck and the mire of their existence, it becomes so easy to forget the old story, the old news. But God doesn't forget. He remembers his purpose. He remembers his plan. He keeps his promise. So providence as we see it is the unworking or the outworking of God's decree from eternity. Trust what God is doing in your life. Trust what God is doing. That the world has not gone spinning off its axis. Trust that God who rules all things inscrutably by his wisdom. Trust that God who calls us forth in his sovereign election. Trust that he knows what he's doing. And he's up to something good. And it will lead, brothers and sisters, to the salvation of all his people. Praise God for that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this word. We thank you for the encouragement and the comfort it brings. We thank you for how marvelous you are. Lord, it, it boggles our imagination. It surpasses our ability to comprehend how you, how you care for all the people that you have created, but yet you're still working out your sovereign plan for your people particularly your ability to manage both the big picture and the minute picture is, is incomparable. We love you. And we delight in the fact that we are loved by you. Grant that we would walk in faith and faithfulness. For Christ's sake we pray it. Amen.